0: It is that time of year when yearbooks come out and everybody gets to pour over pictures of their classmates and quietly judge their haircuts and their senior quotes. These kind of photos are like time capsules. In a decade, you get to look back and remember when certain classmates seemed so innocent and others seemed so awkward. And look what has happened since. Mullets are back in style. Who could have known? Well, there was a unique sort of class photo taken in Washington this week. It was for a very small group of people, the men and women who have been Speaker of the House. That is Speaker Kevin McCarthy posing with almost all of his living predecessors. There is Newt Gingrich, of course, who was Speaker of the House from 1995 to 1999. There is Nancy Pelosi, who was Speaker from 2007 to 2011 and then again from 2019 to this year. There is John Boehner, who was speaker from 2011 to 2015. And there's Paul Ryan, who was speaker from 2015 to 2019. And then there is Kevin McCarthy, the current speaker of the House. If you're wondering about the years 1999 to 2007, that is when Dennis Hastert was speaker of the House. And Dennis Hastert is very much alive, but he stopped getting invited to these kinds of photo ops after he was convicted of being a serial child molester. So yes, the other former speakers were all in town this week to attend the unveiling of Paul Ryan's official portrait. And just like a lot of other class photos, this one offers a lot of insight about the passage of time. In fact, it's sort of a visual roadmap of how Congress ended up in this current crisis. It started back in 1995 when Newt Gingrich became the first Republican Speaker of the House in 40 years. It seems wild to think about now, but for most of the 20th century, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. The Republican presidencies of Eisenhower and Nixon and Ford and Reagan and George H.W. Bush, they all had divided governments, with Democrats controlling at least one chamber of Congress. And while there were major policy fights throughout those eras, none of them ever resulted in the kinds of shenanigans and brawls that we see today. But in 1995, Republicans took back control of the House for the first time since 1955. And their leader, Newt Gingrich, implemented a new style of House politics, one that prioritized conflict with the White House and with Democrats. Gingrich was once quoted as saying, one of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. To which I say, just you wait, Mr. Gingrich, just you wait. Anyway, during that time, the Republican Party was able to extract big concessions from Democrats. They got spending cuts and work requirements and cuts to the social safety net. And then what could be termed nasty era one, culminated in the first impeachment of a US president in modern times, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which by the way, turned the public against Republicans and lost them seats in the house. But despite that loss, the Gingrich model, the nasty model, that stuck. And things became even more extreme under the speakership of John Boehner. It was under Speaker Boehner that the Tea Party and its extremists first decided to put a gun to the head of the American economy. That standoff ultimately resulted in downgrading the U.S. credit for the very first time in history, which House Republicans seem to view as a success because they did not change their tactics after that. They got even more extreme, And they forced Speaker Boehner into resignation. Things got even worse under the short-lived speakership of Paul Ryan, who also resigned in frustration. Do you see a pattern here? Things get nastier and the speakership gets sort of resignier. Which brings us to Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his situation, the one we are all in now. Right now, Speaker McCarthy is trying to survive his historically weak speakership by appeasing an increasingly rebellious conference. And so he is holding the American economy hostage once again to try and extract concessions from another Democratic president. At the same time, his members are suggesting that no concession may ever be enough. After all, this is not Gingrich's nasty era one. This is McCarthy's nasty era two. For example, yesterday, the Speaker casually suggested that Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff shouldn't be serving in the House anymore, It is hard to do that kind of thing casually, but somehow he did it. And within seconds, a right wing member of Congress had introduced a bill to expel Adam Schiff. Nasty era to Republicans are not casual about expelling Democrats. Again, another example, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene has spent this entire week, the whole week, introducing articles of impeachment against four different members of the Biden administration. She capped off her impeachment blitz today by bringing articles of impeachment against the president of the United States because she doesn't like the way Biden has handled the flow of migrants at the southern border.
1: The Constitution outlines a very simple process to fire the corrupt officials serving in the federal government. Impeachment. Matthew Graves, Christopher Ray, Merrick Garland, Alejandro Mayorkas, and Joe Biden are all corrupt and unfit to hold office, and they all must be impeached.
0: This concludes impeachment week. This concludes impeachment week. Remember when Republicans would just impeach the president of the United States and leave it there? Now they have to impeach nearly the whole cabinet too, which makes this particularly odious for Speaker McCarthy, particularly bonkers for his conference, because Marjorie Taylor Greene, is not some fringe lunatic, not anymore anyway. The Congresswoman who has allied herself with January 6th insurrectionists, she is now also considered an ally of the Speaker of the House. The two of them have cemented the pact between what is left of the Republican House establishment and the party's radical right wing. So this is the party. This is the GOP. This is who they are now. Newt Gingrich would be proud. Joining us now is California Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna. Thank you so much for being here, Congressman. Um, it was a sort of short trip down memory lane that we just, uh, I think, treated. Is that the word? Our audience That's accurate. Uh, but I think one of the things we should talk about in, in terms of what is happening right now in the House is not the likelihood of Joe Biden being impeached, but the way in which impeachment, if you impeach everybody all the time, you make impeachment meaningless. And it feels like that's what's happening here on the heels of Donald Trump being impeached twice in the House on Ukraine and on January 6th. This is the comeuppance that Democrats get. Do you read it that same way?
2: I do, Alex. And look, they didn't campaign on impeachment. They knew that the voters would never have given them a House majority campaigning on that. Uh, Now they're doing that because of the extreme right wing. Mm -hmm. This is terrible politics for them. There is absolutely nothing to impeach President Biden on. And they are just making this up out of retribution. There are hundreds of actual reasonable Republicans who know it's terrible politics, but they can't do anything. But
0: isn't it somewhat sly in some, you know, in the way of neutralizing impeachment as an actual punishment? Do you know what I mean? If you keep saying it and doing it all the time, it renders it meaningless and and effectively useless. And do you think We are at risk of impeachment becoming meaningless because of what's happening with the Republican conference. I do think
2: that's part of their goal, which is to say that we're going to do it to President Biden to diminish the actual crimes, the actual serious wrongdoing that President Trump had. That was not an easy vote for many of us with Donald Trump. In fact, if you remember, the Speaker Pelosi held out for the longest time. Mm -hmm. We did not want to do it, but it was just such compelling, overwhelming evidence that we felt that we had to do it. Uh, And there's no comparison between that and ordinary politics. I would never have said, let's impeach uh, Ronald Reagan or Bush Mm -hmm. Sr., I mean, this is they're just trying to muddy the waters uh, to say everyone does it, does it. Uh, But people know the truth. They know that President Biden, whatever you think of his politics, is a decent human being who's dedicated his life to public service.
0: I mean, to some degree, they telegraphed during the Trump impeachments that this would would happen. Right. They would always invoke the specter of potentially Hunter Biden in his laptop. But somehow the sentence always ended in "Well, wait till you wait till a Democrats in office and we impeach him or her. So to some degree, we could see this coming. But I, myself, and I wonder what you think of this, I am surprised at the eye-for-an-eye strategy that they seem to be employing. Like, let's look at the example of George Santos. George Santos, 13 criminal charges against him, members of his own New York delegation who are Republicans saying, you got to get this guy out of here. And yet, the Republican conference at large is unwilling to admit that this person has no place in Congress. And instead, the same week that Santos is up for expulsion, says Adam Schiff, that's who we're going to kick out. I am shocked. That no turn doesn't deserve another in terms of the Republicans seeking retribution for literally anything and everything.
2: This has become their modus operandi. This is why it is so scary that Donald Trump uh, could be their nominee. I mean, his second term would just be vengeance. Mm -hmm. And you have no norms. This is what we make uh, criticize in other countries, that people keep putting their prime ministers in jail or uh, jailing their opposition leaders. Here we had norms. We had a rule of law. We said we have a process. Uh, And what has happened is we had a president, Donald Trump, who broke all those norms, broke all those rules. And instead of saying we're going to hold him accountable Mm -hmm. and move on, instead of having McConnell convict uh, Trump, instead of having McCarthy uh, stand up against him, McCarthy, these people thought Trump would just go away. I know. I, I used to hear that from them. They just thought ah, oh, he'd go away. They don't have to do anything. They didn't have the guts when he was at 30 percent in the polls to actually convict them. And so now he's come back. And now they're beholden to him because McCarthy needed his intervention to get the votes. But
0: what, I mean, I think what's surprising in the Santos example is it's not even about Trump. It's the vengeance and grievance that are central to the DNA of Trumpism that live long past whatever power Trump has. Right. I mean, that is now central to Republican ideology. George Santos is not Donald Trump's ally. He's he's a necessary congressional vote for Kevin McCarthy, who will literally do anything to keep that speaker's scaffold. But he's also become a talisman for Republican grievance. They need to have another victim if George Santos is going to be taken out of Congress. I I do have to ask, because we're looking at the bonkers nature of the Republican conference, how you're looking at these debt ceiling negotiations. Because I think a lot of people say, this conference is so wacko and so uninterested in actual governance. Why should the president of the United States be bargaining with their uh, their representative, Kevin McCarthy, directly? Why should he make any concessions to people who do not have the interest of American voters at heart? Why doesn't he use the 14th Amendment? Why doesn't he use anything, something, but don't negotiate with the terrorists?
2: Well, he should. But let me just explain. Wait, wait, wait. He, he should what? Use, use the 14th, 14th the Amendment. Amendment. But let me explain why Why, in a very simple way. We should not be negotiating in this country about whether we pay our debts. America should pay our debts. This is not the Congress against the president. This is the Congress trying to overrule what past Congresses have already told the president to spend. And so he has every authority to say, Congress, you told me to spend this money. I'm not going to default on America's debts. We are a patriotic nation. It's patriotic to pay our bills, and I'm gonna pay the bills. Let them sue, let them sue and take it to the court. Last time they did these shenanigans, the stock market dropped 15% in 2011. And here's the thing- But they
0: thought it was a hostage worth taking. In In the eyes of Mitch McConnell, it was all worth it.
2: But because you were so eloquent in your history, when President Clinton stood up to the Republicans, that was bad politics from them. When President Obama in 2013 called their bluff and stood up, That was bad politics from them. I think if President Biden says, I'm going to do the patriotic duty in America, we pay our debts, I'm going to pay them, challenge me in the courts, uh, I don't think that they are going to win on that argument. Separately, we can discuss how to reduce our deficits. We have plans for that. Let's tax the wealthy and repeal the Trump tax cuts. Let's make sure we don't have a trillion dollar defense budget. Let's make sure that we have prescription drug negotiation. The deficits are Reagan, Bush, Trump that have created a lot of the deficits. I'm not saying we haven't done... Uh, some of it, but more of the deficit has been Republican uh, run.
0: Um, I have to ask you, as we are talking about who is in Congress and who is not, Dianne Feinstein, senator from California. There is new reporting from The New York Times about the degree of illness she has suffered while she has been out with shingles. Um, she, the, her, the reporting is that she has been disoriented and really questionably serving in Congress for some time now. What needs to happen here?
2: First, let me say I admire her career. I mean, she has had an extraordinary career, but it's sad for anyone to see. And it's sad for her own colleagues to see. I'm hopeful that people who are close to her can talk to her and just say, look, end uh, your service with dignity. Step aside. uh, Let the governor appoint someone. It's painfully obvious to people. I went out and I said something that many people are are thinking.
0: Do you think that's going to happen?
2: I hope so. I mean, I I, I think for her own uh, dignity, for her own career, for her own legacy, it would be good. It would be good for California. It's sort of we all have seen an athlete who plays one or two more seasons. Uh, that's what this started out at. But now it's just painful. It's painful to watch. And my hope is I know there are people who are close to her. Uh, I don't think it should be forceful. I think they should have a loving conversation about it being time.
0: California Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Nice to see you you in
2: person. Thank you.
0: We have a lot more tonight, including three self-described whistleblowers testified in today's weaponization of government hearing on anti-conservative bias within the FBI. Yes, you heard that correctly. Anti-conservative bias within the FBI, that is coming up. But first, gun violence is the number one public health concern in America. Senator Raphael Warnock joins me live to talk about when and how all this killing ends. That's right after the break. Last Thursday, it happened in Chicago. A shooter killed two people and injured three others. That was one of three mass shootings all on the same day in Chicago and Philadelphia and Indianapolis. The next day on Friday, it happened near a restaurant in Maryland. A shooter injured four. On Saturday, it happened in six different places, six mass shootings in one day, including at a graduation party in Manchester, New Hampshire. On Sunday... On Mother's Day, there were four mass shootings in Pennsylvania, Indiana, Alabama, and Louisiana. This week, on Monday, it happened in Farmington, New Mexico. An 18-year-old opened fire at random with at least three guns. He shot nine people, killing three of them. The victims were all women over the age of 70, and among them were a mother and her daughter. On Tuesday, it happened in San Antonio, and then again today in San Antonio. Two mass shootings in the same city in less than 48 hours. In the past seven days, there have been 17 mass shootings in America. According to a new Axios-Ipsos poll, gun violence is now the top public health concern among Americans. More than COVID, more than cancer, more than smoking, more than fentanyl. Gun violence is the number one health concern in the entire country, period. And what is Congress focused on? policing trans girls' participation in school sports, or at least that is the priority for House Republicans, who passed a bill last month to block trans women and girls from women's sports. And yet, if you squint your eyes hard enough, all hope is not lost. Today, Senator Raphael Warnock, alongside some of his colleagues in the Senate and the House, held a press conference demanding action.
1: We can't. Wait another 30 years for Congress to pass meaningful, common-sense gun safety legislation. And we can't wait for the next headline, the next tragic flashpoint, because there is a profound way in which these tragedies are happening every single day.
0: Joining us now is Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Senator Warnock, thank you for being here this evening. I I was not aware of this statistic, and I wonder what you think of it. Um, Gun owners more likely identify as Republicans. They are white, they are male, and they live in rural areas. Almost half of white men in this country, 48 percent, say they own a gun. We talk a lot about the intransigence over gun safety reform as being a result of the NRA. But it seems to me that until the actual demographics of gun ownership change, it's possible this issue keeps running into roadblocks. Do you think that has anything to do with this?
1: Well, good to be here with you tonight, Alex. And uh, as we were pointing out earlier today in this press conference, uh, we are confronted with a very serious and uh, critical issue Uh, around gun violence. And I began to raise this issue in the Congress uh, most recently a couple of weeks ago, because as we were witnessing all of the kind of carnage that you just described day after day and uh, the terrible flashpoints like uh, what we saw in Nashville, Tennessee, there was reticence and radio silence in Congress. And I'm afraid that we have normalized this kind of carnage happening every single day in America, the good news is that most Americans, red, yellow, uh, uh, red, yellow, white, brown and, and black, every, everybody on both sides of the aisle, nearly 90 percent of Americans feel that we need to pass universal background checks. There's a path to getting this done. Uh, we are just witnessing uh, a kind of impasse in Congress that, I quite frankly, doesn't reflect what's going on in the country.
0: But do you think, I mean, the base of the Republican Party, so a lot of the reason nothing gets done in Congress is because this does not seem to be issue, an issue of utmost importance for Republicans. And when you look at who owns guns, it, it, it's white male Republicans in rural areas. That's a core part of the Republican base. Do you think that there's a connection between, between those two things?
1: I think there is a, a lot of uh, misinformation around this whole uh, issue around gun safety. The fact of the matter is, this year we have seen mass shootings in uh, 38 states uh, and the District of Columbia. So those are red states and blue states and rural communities in urban centers. We've seen uh, mass shootings that create these kinds of flashpoints, uh, but every single day in urban areas, black and brown communities, Uh, witness uh, a kind of carnage, which if you, cumulatively, it is a mass shooting every single day. And so uh, what we've got to do is we've got to close ranks. We've got to remember the covenant we have with one another. And if we can't keep our own children safe, what in the world are we doing? So what I'm focused on right now on doing is trying to bring together my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. We passed bipartisan uh, gun safety legislation last summer. Uh, It was modest but meaningful. It emphasized uh, mental health care, uh, uh, expanding uh, or supporting background checks, but it's not nearly enough. And what we've got to do is think about what is it that we can do uh, to build on that progress. We can't wait another single day. We certainly can't wait 30 years Uh, to get some more legislation passed.
0: Yeah, that uh, modest but meaningful uh, reform that you talk about came after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, uh, where... 19 students and two teachers were killed. It seems like the slaughter of children is often an inflection point for indignation and sometimes very occasionally actual legislation. But I mean, when you think about what's changed the most in and around these school shootings, it isn't that we've passed gun safety reform measures. It's that now all of our children have to do active shooter drills. I mean, I as a parent, and I know you're a parent too. We both have six-year-olds. I find it abhorrent that that's the change we made as a culture, is get kids used to the idea that someone may come into their classroom and shoot them to death.
1: Well, absolutely. I'm I'm the father of a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And ironically, uh, last week, as I was pushing my own colleagues to step up in this moment to do more, I literally left uh, the majority leader's office. And an hour later, there was an active shooting shooting situation in Atlanta which left my own children uh, in a uh, lockdown. And folks are saying that this is about freedom. It's a strange freedom that leaves our children on any random day in a lockdown. Mass shootings every single day is not the cost of freedom. It's the cost of blind obstinance. It's the cost of, of demagoguery. It's the cost of greed. And we have to do better than this. Uh, Dr. King used to say we start to die the day we become silent about the things that matter. And we are literally dying physically and spiritually uh, as we normalize this kind of carnage in everyday American life. Uh, And the fact that we can't get movement in the Congress on something for which there is nearly 90 percent agreement among Americans means that we have a democracy problem. The voices of the people are being squeezed out of their democracy, which is why I ran in the first place And I'm doing the best I can on this and other issues to help the people to get their voices back. If we can do that, we can get reasonable, common-sense gun laws passed.
0: Um I, I got to ask you as a as someone who knows well the inside of a church um uh, and has spent a lot of time there longer than you have inside the halls of Congress and I think you understand part of the the, the force that animates American life and you talk you use the word normalize a couple times in this interview and I agree with you I think the violence is being normalized in American culture I I don't usually compare the United States to Serbia but 3 weeks ago There were mass shootings in Serbia and three weeks ago, literally tens of thousands of people came out and protested and handed in 6,000 guns. People gave up their arms because they would not and could not abide the violence that was starting to blossom in their country. That is an unthinkable thing to happen in the United States of America. Why do we hold on to these guns knowing what they are doing to our children, to our society?
1: It's a very good question. Uh, But again, uh, there is much more agreement among Americans on universal background checks, on banning assault weapons, uh, on a whole range of things than we see reflected in the legislation that's getting passed in Congress. We have a problem, we have a brokenness in our democracy where the chasm between what Americans want their differences notwithstanding, and what they're able to get done in their government is growing wider and wider. And that's what, that's what we have to address. We've got to address uh, this issue, uh, this, this kind of brokenness in our democracy, where the people's voices are squeezed out. Nearly not, I mean, think about it. As divided as we are, and, and, and we are, there are differences. There's nearly 90% agreement among Americans, according to a Fox News poll. <laughs> uh that we should have universal background checks and and we still can't get it. Uh so this is this is the work that I'm trying to get my colleagues to get focused on. Uh we passed bipartisan uh gun safety legislation last summer. I'm not about to give up. We can build on that work and get something done for our it, children.
0: It is noble work, Senator. Let it not be fruitless. Uh good luck in the fight. Thank you for your time tonight. Senator Raphael Warnock of Georgia. Appreciate Keep it. Keep the faith. Coming up, Republicans on House Republicans, Republicans on Republicans. Republicans are laser focused on woke libs inside the FBI. Is that actually a thing? That is next. Today, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan's so-called Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, that committee held a hearing at which Congressman Jordan aimed to expose how the FBI is secretly a liberal cabal. Congressman Jordan's evidence of this anti-conservative deep state agenda inside the FBI, his evidence was these guys, men whom Jordan called whistleblowers. OK. OK. Here's one of those so-called whistleblowers, former FBI SWAT team member Stephen Friend, explaining why he believes the FBI suspended him.
3: My suspension document that I got from the FBI's Human Resource Division listed a few things, uh, one of which being my refusal to participate in lawful uh, arrests, which was the January sixth. Uh, which again, I didn't refuse to participate in. I said that I had a you know a, a conflict of interest, uh, conscientious objection.
0: Before I get into the substance of what Mr. Friend is saying here, it is important to take a moment to acknowledge that Mr. Friend is saying this on the Russian state propaganda network RT. And this clip is from December, which was nearly a year into Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. And this is Mr. Friend's network of choice. Anyway, let us look at the arrest for which Mr. Friend claims he was a conscientious objector. The New York Times reports that Mr. Friend declined to join an arrest on August 24th in Jacksonville, Florida. Justice Department records show only one January 6th related arrest in the Jacksonville area on August 24th for a man named Tyler Bench. Here is what Mr. Bench wore on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. A tactical vest, a military-style helmet, goggles, and a gas mask. He carried a chemical irritant on the front of his vest. The Justice Department alleges that Mr. Bench is a self-described supporter of the far-right militia group The Three Percenters, You can see him with the other alleged three percenters here at the entrance of a tunnel to the Capitol, allegedly heave hoeing with the crowd to push past police. The Justice Department further alleges that he used his chemical irritant to spray the face of a, quote, unknown member of the crowd, even though that person posed no threat to him. So that's the person Mr. Friend seems to have had a conscientious objection to arresting. Congressman Jordan's whistleblower number two is this guy. Suspended FBI Staff Operations Specialist Marcus Allen. Allen had his top secret security clearance revoked not only because he had, quote, espoused alternative theories about January 6th or because the FBI believed Mr. Allen had raised sufficient concerns about his allegiance to the United States. In addition to those things, the FBI revoked Mr. Allen's security clearance because of an incident where Allen had been assigned to determine whether a person the FBI was investigating had been involved in any criminal activity on January 6th. Now, Mr. Allen reported that he didn't find anything on this person. But when another agent looked into the matter, that agent found that the person they'd been investigating had physically assaulted U.S. Capitol Police officers on January 6th. So those are the first two of Jim Jordan's blockbuster whistleblowers. And here's number three, suspended FBI agent Garrett O'Boyle. In addition to admitting today that Mr. O'Boyle had received money from Trump advisor Cash Patel, O'Boyle is a prolific COVID-19 conspiracy theorist. He has compared vaccine mandates to the Nazi regime. And of course, he is an election denier. But if you are Chairman Jim Jordan, these are but details. After the hearing today, Jordan tweeted, quote, God bless our brave whistleblowers. These three so-called whistleblowers were at the center of Jim Jordan's big hearing today, but the rest of it was also a circus. And we're going to get into all of it with Mary McCord and Peter Strzok coming up next. Less than two months ago, former
4: President Trump, facing mounting investigations into his many alleged crimes, declared that, quote, Republicans in Congress should defund the DOJ and the FBI until they can come to their
0: senses. And we all know that when Trump says jump, the Republicans in the House say how high. That was Stacey Plaskett ranking Democrat on the House Weaponization Subcommittee, where Republicans are trying to make the case that the FBI has become a hotbed of deep state liberalism, intent on purging the agency of patriots and real conservatives. Joining us now is former FBI agent Peter Strzok and Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the DOJ. She is also a co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Thank you guys both for being here. Peter, as a former FBI agent, I must ask you about this idea that the FBI is a hotbed of deep state liberalism. True or false? False.
3: Alex, absolutely false. Look, I spent more than 20 years in the organization. It is absolutely a conservative organization, whether that's politically, whether it's in terms of its view of law and order, whether it's in terms of sort of broadly in a societal sense. It isn't something that is talked about. I mean, it is just sort of the culture is one that is generally conservative, but it's not. People don't sit there having political discussions over the lunch table. But to assert in any way, shape or form that it is a hotbed of liberalism is absolutely absurd and nothing could be further from the truth.
0: Yeah, it seems like indeed nothing could be further from the truth, Mary, because NBC had reporting that not only was the FBI not a hotbed of like hippie liberalism, in fact, a a a, a local a, a, an unnamed FBI official warned Last year, I believe, or before—sorry, before the January 6th attack—we learned of this last year—that an FBI official warned that there is, a, at best, a sizable percentage of the employee population of January 6—of FB, of the FBI that felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol. I'm getting my timing wrong all over the place here, but just to repeat this reporting, there was a warning that a sizable portion of the FBI employee population was sympathetic to the January 6th insurrection. That does not smack of liberalism. That smacks of something entirely different. Can you elaborate on that?
4: Yeah. You know, that's been troublesome reporting ever since that it came out. And, um, I, you know, I think that there is still there a big difference between maybe some people in the FBI who might have thought, OK, uh, p- there are people who believe that there was fraud in the election. Some of those people got swept up in this. There's a difference between members of the FBI who might think that and others like the men you were speaking about before the break who were testifying today on Capitol Hill who actually— it it appears from the reporting and from what's been reported about the letter um that the FBI sent to Jim Jordan about why their security clearances were revoked that reporting suggests far more than sympathy sympathy is concerning but it 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 actually success, suggests that active measures were taken to try to uh suppress um investigations into January 6th uh, attackers and also to, you know, not cooperate with the arrest of someone for whom there was a, a an arrest warrant. Um, and so those types of things are very, very concerning. I ho- hope and believe that that's not the predominant view among the FBI as Pete said, it's a conservative organization generally. And I think the lean to think it's a hotbed of liberalism is is quite the opposite of what it is. But I do hope that these views that we're hearing today are quite the minority.
0: Yeah. Um, Peter, on that note, it's not just that these men are being proposed—it's not that there's nothing to—their the, security clearances are being revoked. There are punitive measures that we're taking against, against these so-called whistleblowers. But in the same turn— Jim Jordan, who's the chair of the Oversight Committee, is lauding them as brave Americans and heroes. These are people who potentially did not investigate insurrectionists, who objected to their arrest, who, who, who hid investigative activity. I mean, that is deeply problematic for the FBI. What did you make of the way in which that those problematic behaviors were flipped on their head entirely by the chair of the Congressional Oversight Committee today?
3: Yeah, well, it is concerning. Look, the last thing the FBI needs is some hyperpartisan congressman trying to take the FBI's action the FBI's employees and try and make it into a, you know, one side versus the other sort of organization. You know, look, in defense of the FBI, the fact of the matter is really complex investigations and prosecutions of the Oath Keepers, of the Proud Boys, have taken place with FBI investigators working with DOJ and have been successfully prosecuted, involving investigation all across the United States. So by and large, the vast majority of the FBI is doing their job without fear of favor and just pursuing the facts wherever they lie. The problem is the FBI is a large organization and with 35,000 people, you are going to find people on, all, on both extremes. And so when you get people like Congressman Jordan who select these people who are on the far right with really outrageous behaviors that to lose your clearance, to have it revoked, not suspended, but revoked, gone forever, you have to really engage in some rather extraordinarily dangerous behavior. And for Jim Jordan to take those people, to take that behavior and somehow try and champion that is what is to be expected or should be expected is really sending the wrong message to the American people. And it's absolutely nothing that I'm sure that the FBI wants to hear from him.
0: Well, and Peter, the second part of that is he's using them as a cudgel against the FBI. I mean, and it appears to be working, at least if you listen to right-wing media. Laura Ingram yesterday said, I don't know anyone who trusts the FBI anymore. This is coming on the heels of the Durham report, which purportedly was an explosive, an expose on how the investigators investigating shouldn't have been investigating. I, I mean, I just wonder what you think the end game is here, given that we're talking about the FBI and there's legitimately a phrase out there that people are repeating, and it goes something like, defund the FBI. What's the end game for Republicans?
3: Well, the end game is to try and neuter any sort of possibility of investigations of Trump. There are multiple things going on right now, certainly through special counsel Jack Smith, but other things related to Trump, whether it is, you know, the things of the special counsel and the Mar-a-Lago document uh, process, all the January 6th activity, the goal is to undermine support of the FBI so that they cannot effectively pursue any sort of an investigation of Donald Trump. It's not going to work. Now, the problem, of course, is these FBI agents, the ex-FBI agents that we've saw, have some of these extreme views. And the question is, where did they hear them? Well, the answer is, in many cases, they heard them from places like Fox News. So you get this sort of echo chamber where Fox and others are promulgating these crazy theories agents and others are listening to them and believing them and then are turning up on these same shows to further you know amplify and bounce right back into that ecosystem so it's a dangerous cycle but at the end of the day the goal is to make it harder for the FBI to pursue any investigations or violations of the law surrounding Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. Mary, I wonder what you think about that, because we know from some reporting in The Washington Post that there was a disagreement between FBI field agents and DOJ prosecutors over the search of Donald Trump's property down at Mar-a-Lago. Do you think this new narrative that's emerging about the FBI being somehow anti-conservative will affect its ability or its desire to investigate all corners of Trump's potential criminal wrongdoings?
4: I really don't, because, I, I, you know, I agree with Pete here. I mean, it's a huge organization. I think most of the agents—I I worked with FBI for more than 20 years in my career at the Department of Justice. And, and I can say, you know, we didn't have political uh, conversations. I never felt like anyone was making any decision. Now, granted, I wasn't investigating the former president of the United States, but I was involved in some pretty sensitive investigations. Um, and I guess I shouldn't say I wasn't in, uh, investigating the former president of the United States, because Pete and I both were involved in the Russian investigation while we were still in, in, in government. But my point is, I never saw anything that suggested to me that politics was infecting their work. And I think that to the extent that there are disagreements, and sometimes there are, often there are, within the FBI, within the Department of Justice, and between the Department Department of Justice and the FBI about tactics and strategies with respect to investigative uh, measures that will be taken in a case, those things happen, um, and they happen even in uncontroversial cases. And so—but ultimately, you know, the buck stops. If it has to go all the way to the attorney general, that's where the buck stops, and decisions get made. And if an agent can't do their job, that agent would get removed from the case. But I, I, think, that, um, I think that most of the agents will be, you know, doing exactly—they're working with the prosecutors, they're working the investigations. And I feel confidence in their ability to to get the job done.
0: Peter Strzok and Mary McCord, thank you guys both for joining me tonight. Really appreciate it. We have one more story for you coming up. Ron DeSantis took his culture war to Disney World and he is getting the ride of a lifetime. Stay with us. It was supposed to be located right here in the beautiful Lake Nona region in Orlando, Florida, a massive business development project that would redefine the retail experience in the region. And in the middle of all those shops and those galleries and gardens, in the middle of all of it, the plan was to erect a 1.8 million square foot corporate campus for Florida's biggest taxpayer, Disney. Not anymore. Today, Disney announced that due to Changing business conditions in Florida the company will not move forward with the construction of its Lake Nona campus this is a huge hit to florida's economy the project was valued at nearly 1 billion dollars and was expected to bring more than 2000 new jobs to the state of florida white collar jobs many of them relocated from california california with its average yearly salaries of 120,000 dollars Now, while Disney didn't name Governor Ron DeSantis as the reason it decided to pull the plug, the announcement does come amid an escalating feud between the Florida governor and Disney over the company's opposition to the state's education law known as Don't Say Gay, which restricts in-class discussion of gender and sexual orientation in Florida public schools. Despite DeSantis promoting and pushing for and signing that law, today he blamed all of the things except himself. Given Disney's financial straits, he said, falling market cap and declining stock price, it is unsurprising that Disney would restructure their business operations and cancel unsuccessful ventures. The reality here is that DeSantis has likely cost his own state more than 2,000 high-paying jobs, jobs that would be appreciated elsewhere, like, say, California. Governor Gavin Newsom today said, turns out bigoted policies have consequences. That's 2,000-plus jobs that will be welcomed back with open arms to the golden state. A DeSantis presidential announcement is expected next week. That is our show for tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow.